Hello and welcome to Gripping in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. In today's episode, and every day of my life, I want to talk about ants. Ants are about as interesting as anything can be. Right now, where I am, it's cold and it's grey. I'm looking out of my parents' dining room window. My parents are lucky enough to have a garden, and out there, unseen beneath the earth, within the patio cracks, ant queens are overwintering and getting ready for the new year. The ants in question are Lacious Niger, common black ant, though I dare say there's a few little yellow mates, Lacious Flavus, knocking about, and maybe even some Myrmica rubra, and so on and so forth. I've mentioned three species, but only one of those three will play any particular part in this episode, because today we're not talking about the majesty of County Durham's ant population. So what are we going to talk about? The subject of ants is huge and it's intricate and exciting. We have a lot of ways into that subject and a lot to talk about. Early on, I opted to go specific. We talked about flying ant day and colony life cycles. Today, let's throw our net a little wider. I want to present you with some heavy hitters and journey around the world on a hunt for some of the most spectacular creatures that nature has to offer. I want to take a broader look at the diversity of ants and share with you some of the showpiece lifestyles which we find within the former city, that upstart family within the Hymenoptera which have conquered the world. So in this episode, we'll visit the nests of the leafcutters, we'll pursue the army ants across jungle floors and we'll have a look at the weavers, and all the while we'll point and we'll say, right, what exactly is going on here? We'll take a look at how these ants and many others fit into the ant world and try and provide a semblance of how ants are categorised and how to make sense of those categories. We're going to wander down the corridor of an art gallery, an ant gallery if you will, stopping to admire the masterpieces that we find, the grandmasters of the ants. I can't overstate my enthusiasm for ants, but I'm not an expert. Luckily, I know one. Today, joining me to uncover the diversity of ants is the wonderful entomologist and ecologist, Miles Maxke. It's always a pleasure to hear from Miles, and so I can't wait for you to join us as we, with this big spade called a podcast, dig into and uncover the diversity of ants. Well, I'm thrilled to say that joining me today is Miles Maxka, entomologist, ecologist and science communicator returning, first return guest to the podcast. So, Miles, how are you and how are your ants? Hey, Tom. It's so wonderful to be back here on Grubbing in the Filth. Thank you for asking. I am doing well. Uh, my ants are also doing well. We have actually moved to Florida, so I am now down at the University of Florida. So when you moved down, did you have to um, bring tanks of ants with you? Unfortunately not. No, the regulatory situation in the state of Florida is very strict. So Mm. we actually had to acquire all new ants here in the state of Florida. The good news is that Florida is actually one of the best U.S. states when it comes to ant diversity and just having some really interesting and fun ant species. So you're you're able to kind of restock, I guess, or just (laughs) immerse yourself in in, in a new new setup. Well, yes, that's right. What new is there for you to report in terms of your science and your entomology and things like that. Yeah, so since we last spoke, I've started a PhD here at the University of Florida in the Department of Entomology and Nematology. So I'm serving as a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellow, which is a really fancy way to say Mm -hmm. that I'm super fortunate that the American people are funding some research that I'm doing on ant ecology, on science communication, and on public policy. So specifically, I'm looking at the invasion ecology of an invasive ant, Pseudomermex gracilis. That's the slender twig ant or the elongate twig ant. 
And they actually came from Central America, maybe Mexico, up into Florida, Hawaii, other places of interest. And they've become a pretty serious invasive ant. And we actually know very, very little about them. So mm. one of my main research focuses is just figuring out what are they doing? What kind of impacts might they be having? And I'm pretty concerned that those ants could be at least partially responsible for the decline of some of our butterflies that are of conservation importance nice. here in Florida and beyond. Last time we spoke, we spoke about quite a specific topic. We kind of focused on the phenomenon of flying ant and slightly more broadly, ant colony life cycles and, and mating and kind of how that kind of thing occurs. And what I wanted to do today is ant is such a fascinating subject and such an interesting part of the insect world. But it would be maybe good to have a bit more of a general look at the ants because you can go granular, you can look at specific things, and that'll always be fascinating. But maybe it'd be good to get a bit of a bigger picture. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that is that, do you remember, I'm sure you do remember, but a year, maybe two years ago, you, um, you made a video online, the ant tier list. Do you remember making this? <laughs> yes, I got a lot of, uh, a lot of flack for that one. Mm, well, here comes some more. So my prevailing memory of that video is the, the slating the United Kingdom got and Europe sort of more, <laughs> more generally in terms of our ant diversity. So this is your moment. If you want to defend yourself at this point. Look, I, I would say basically all ants, maybe even all ants, period, have really mm -hmm. fascinating life histories and they play important roles in ecosystems around the world. That being said, uh, there are some ants that are a little bit more unique and charismatic, and, and I look forward sure. to talking to you about that today. Unfortunately, they're not necessarily present or headquartered in the United Kingdom. They have some fantastic sure. ants across the pond, and uh, I really kind of dream to see them one day because those are the ants that uh, kind of Western researchers and hobbyists have used to learn how to keep ants as pets, and right. that has made my livelihood possible. So I have a huge respect for the ants of, of England and beyond, but I will say a lot of the most exciting ants um, are present primarily in the tropics. Sure. Well, today it can be a chance for us then to, to have a look at some of those ants. But to speak about the ants then, we have the ants which are a family, the, the ant family which is within the Hymenopteran order, where you find the bees and the wasps as well, and the, the sawflies, within the insects. And within the ants, and I was wondering, what are the kind of major subfamilies within the ant family? Sure. There are 21 different subfamilies of ants that are extant. So that means existing right now. Mm -hmm. uh, at least that's how we have them classified at the moment. Um, and I'm going to focus on the big four because we don't have time to go through all 21 and, and talk about the differences. But the big four are the Mermesini, the Formicini, the Ponerini, and the Dolichoterines. And these different kind of ants have lots of different... Um, traits to them, morphological traits and life history traits that uh, can help us see them more intuitively as, as different groups. But it ultimately comes down to a, a few different features that evolutionarily have been very important. So for example, the formicines, which a good example of that would be Laceus niger, which is the black garden ant that we discussed on the last episode, carpenter ants, mm -hmm. many of the, the ants that we see most often uh, at least in North America and in Europe, are formicine ants. They have a thin cuticle, so it's like a thin uh, exoskeleton layer, and they only have a single petiolar segment, so one little piece that connects the gaster or the abdomen to the mesosoma or the thorax. 
And, and in the field, that could be fairly easy to distinguish from one of the other most common ant subfamilies, the Myrmeciny or Myrmecines, which have a thick cuticle. They look a lot more armored than our Formicine ants do. And they actually have two different petiolar segments. So they're a little bit more elongated. There are lots of different traits that separate these groups, but ultimately we use the subfamilies, the genera, and the species to help us classify ants and and fill in the gap that is the branch of the tree of life that ants have. So using a lot of different tools, using genetics, morphology, uh, we're able to kind of piece together how did ants evolve and then diversify across basically all of Earth. Um, they are present on every continent except for Antarctica, ironically. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and just as an aside, that's, I have a personal dream to bring like an ant farm to Antarctica. So we, <laughs> so we have ants on, on every continent. It's a, it's a dream we all dream. Well, thinking about those, those subfamilies and stuff, there's a lot of kind of common names, I guess you'd say, like phrases that people will have heard of when it comes to ants. So things like people have heard of um, fire ants or harvester ants or army ants. When we think about those names, are those names overlapping? Are, they, are these common names for major subfamilies of ants, or is there a bit more to it than that? There's a lot more to it than that. When you look at leafcutter ants, you're a little bit more specific. That refers to atine ants, just a few different groups of ants that all cut leaves. If you want to look at army ants, it's a more specific set. Uh, but if you talk about fire ants, that's actually a broad term that encapsulates many different ant species that are maybe only distantly related. So it really isn't relevant to the classification of ants in a formal sense, and more so something that we use kind of as a layperson terminology, a, a common name, if you will. The kind of the way that ants exist, we have these various families, and within those families, these various subfamilies rather, and within those subfamilies, we have various behaviors by which we kind of derive some of the, that terminology, I guess, right? Yes. So the classification process takes precedence, and then mm -hmm. the groups that come out of that process, we can use different terms to, to distinguish. But a lot of the time, we will group different ant species that maybe aren't super closely related together based on their behaviors. So right. harvester ants, which is a broad term that encapsulates multiple different genera of ants across many different continents, that's not a, a term used for classification purposes, but it does help us understand what those ants do. In the case of harvester ants, it basically means that they collect seeds and then use those as a food source. Well, humans are really good at recognizing patterns. And of course, when we look at ants, there's no exception to that. So we can see patterns of different life histories and strategies and behaviors. I wanted to just talk about a few of the most exciting different ant species and groups of ants. And I thought we should start with the fire ants because this comes up all the time for many right. different reasons. And fire ants, it's a term that use, gets used like really frequently, but it's mm. not very descriptive. We essentially have used fire ant to describe ants that have a powerful sting. So there's the sure. European fire ant, Myrmica rubra which really are not closely related at all to the red imported fire ant, Solenopsis invicta. Now, the red imported fire ant is probably the most studied ant on planet Earth. It's definitely the most economically important, or at least it has been for the last six or seven decades. And they have their own kind of classified common name called the red imported fire ant or RIFA. 
The Entomological Society of America, which is sort of a misnomer, it's centered here in the United States, but it is also an international organization. They have a list of approved common names. So these are official common names assigned to certain insect species. And there are many different thousands of ant species. Not all of them have common names, but most of the ones that you would be likely to ask me about or anyone would be likely to encounter are going to have some sort of approved common name. And a fire ant is really too general of a term. So if we apply it to an individual species, it usually gets a little bit more complicated. Again, red imported fire ant, tropical fire ant, European fire ant, that sort of thing. But the thing that unites them in terms of being a general group is the, the capacity for stinging. Not only the capacity for stinging, but the propensity of stinging, the, right. the frequency at which they seem to sting humans and at which we notice it and uh, have a very negative reaction. Yes. <laughs> What's your personal experience with uh, of ant stings? You know, I think we talked last episode about how I got into oh, ants yeah, and how I got stung uh, as a child. So my my history with ant stings is actually pretty pretty thorough and it goes way back to second grade. What I will say is that the ant stings I've experienced here in Florida and in Arizona and in Madagascar, for example, are a lot more powerful than what I grew up with up in northern Idaho. Um, And the ants do seem to be, generally speaking, more aggressive down here. (laughs) Well, is it within the fire ants? One thing I was thinking about in terms of those kind of showpiece behaviors we see in the ant world, is it within the, again, I'm using fire ant as a pretty general term but is this where we see that kind of that rafting behavior from certain ants yes we see it primarily in solenopsis invicta although there are a few other solenopsis species that i believe do engage in in life raft making but red imported fire ants will actually form rafts using their their bodies they basically interlock all of their legs together they'll grab onto their sisters with their mandibles and essentially create a lifeboat or a raft out of their own bodies, upon which the queen and the brood and the other kind of most important members of the colony can be on top of. So that will help them weather things like storms. So if there's a lot of flooding, the ant colony can still remain as a unit, despite the ground or wherever they're nesting being submerged by water. It's one of the reasons that fire ants have been so successful here in the southeastern United States, where we do have intermittent flooding. And on occasion, we actually have very severe storms like hurricanes, which can cause immense flooding. And that can actually really dampen the uh, ability for our native ant species to reproduce. And it gives the red imported fire ants a huge leg up because their colonies are able to stay pretty healthy and survive those storms. It also creates a extraordinary hazard for rescue personnel who are trying to help uh, people and their pets in the water after major natural disasters. They'll actually have uh, fire ants rafting over and attaching to boats or other other recovery vessels and and efforts. And that's a uh, a surprising but very serious problem here. Of course, yeah. And well, speaking of serious, you mentioned was it um, Solenopsis invicta that you said was an ant that's been studied the most because of its its importance in terms yes. of in terms of what exactly? So Solenopsis invicta is what we consider an invasive species. So they are not native here in Florida or anywhere in North America. They likely came over in the 1930s and, and potentially the 1940s, and 
were actually found in Mobile, Alabama by Mr. E.O. Wilson. Uh, and they have spread throughout much of the southeastern United States and into parts of the Southwest as well. And they've done billions and billions of dollars of economic damage. The estimate is that the United States incurs about five to six billion dollars in economic damage agriculturally and otherwise from the red imported fire ant. So it's a major focus of government agencies like the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, it's been an expensive mistake <laughs> that those ants were uh, allowed to come over. And unfortunately for our quality of life, they're called fire ants for a reason. And they yeah. are extraordinarily aggressive and, and they have very painful stings. You can now make donations to help offset the running costs of this podcast. If you're enjoying Grubbing the Filth and want to make a donation like a benevolent Victorian, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash grubbingcast. But you can also write a brief message if you so wish. Any donations are truly appreciated. Thank you. I wanted to talk with Miles about leafcutter ants. These are ants of enormous note, and I'm sure you're familiar with the classic image of the little ant with a big bit of leaf. These are myrmicine ants of the Atta and Acromyrmex genera, existing in huge colonies and capable of stripping a tree of its leaves within 24 hours. These are economically significant herbivores, viewed by many as pests. Pests or not, they live intriguing lives, and they serve as one of the plainest illustrations of the fact that we ought not to consider insect life as something insignificant. The impact of the leaf cutter is apparent and clear. What do you reckon they're doing with those leaves then? The answer may surprise you. I asked Miles to tell us more. So if we're looking at herbivory by ants, it's almost always going to be done by the leaf cutter ants. So these right. are fungus growing ants. They actually don't eat leaves at all, uh, okay. but they go out and they collect leaves from the environment, usually from living trees or grasses. And they can be extraordinarily important herbivores and many of the systems in South and Central America. Unfortunately, it also means that they can be pretty dramatic pests in places like citrus orchards. So what the ants will do is they'll go ahead and find, you know, let's, let's go ahead and say an orange tree. And they will create a large column going from the ant colony with many different ants of different sizes or different castes. So they have miners and majors and media workers, all kinds of different, different ants will go out and then cut the leaves to size. They'll take these leaves that are kind of cut up and take them down into their fungus gardens that are underground. Picture soccer balls, uh, or at least soccer ball-sized chambers under the ground just filled with a white fungus, kind of like a mushroom. Mm -hmm. What the ants will do is they'll take these pieces of leaves, cut them up really small, and just kind of work them into that fungus, and it feeds it. That fungus is also their primary and, generally speaking, their only food source. So it's used to nourish the workers and the brood throughout their lifespans. It's a fascinating life strategy mm. that we have seen actually kind of converge in other insects like termites which will also use fungus to uh, essentially create a reliable food source. So we see these kind of agriculturalist insects as particularly exciting when we look at insect evolution and we look at how they play really important roles in ecosystems. Mm. And interestingly, with the leafcutter ants, most ant species would not be considered herbivores. Or if they are, maybe they're collecting seeds or they're drinking 
extra floral nectar from a plant, but they're really not consuming plant material. Whereas the leaf pitter ants, they really are kind of at least involved in the consumption of plant material. It's estimated that uh, leaf cutter ants in parts of South America actually are the primary herbivores. And I believe that actually includes swaths of the Amazon rainforest, where the ants are responsible for about 40% of the defoliation that occurs there, which is just an immense number for an insect so small. Have you ever had the chance to see leafcutter ants you know, in, out in the wild? I have been fortunate enough to see leafcutter ants out in the wild, actually just a couple of months ago, uh, at the University of Texas at Austin's uh, field laboratory, we got to see some extraordinary Atta Texana colonies uh, that were out there kind of foraging for food, taking some leaves into the nest and doing nest maintenance. And what's so fun about leafcutter ants, especially the largest species, the Atta, uh, is that their colonies can be like twice the length of my own wingspan, you know, arm to arm. Mm. So these are huge colonies. There's actually a great video on YouTube somewhere that shows a research crew pouring concrete into an atta nest. And it took like a week of of this very liquid (laughs) concrete going into the nest for it to fill up. And then they they let it cure for a long time. That nest structure was larger than a school bus. So these can be huge colonies and they have really big impacts kind of on the ecosystems that they're found in. The leaf cut around, that's kind of, when people write books about ants and stuff, that's kind of often the front cover. It's quite a, charismatic little carrying a big bit of leaf you know it's it's quite a well-known image but that that sense of them having these colonies underground that are so much bigger than you'd anticipate and the fact that you know they're not eating leaves it almost feels like a a metaphor for the study of ants more broadly because we have this surface level behavior that we that we see there's the there go the ants carrying their leaves that's that's lovely they're industrious little, little folk and then you have this whole world of a form of agriculture, you know, from the insectile agriculture going on beneath the ground. Yes, and it's even more complex than we initially thought, because the ants are using some really extraordinary adaptations to allow them to cultivate this fungus. Now, a single kind of cultivar of fungus is subject to attack from lots of other insects, from microbes. Uh, other fungi that might want to take advantage of it. So the ants actually have to keep it really clean. The fungus Mm. helps them in that process, but we've actually learned that ants have some antimicrobial properties and and compounds and things that help them kind of keep their bodies and their nests clean. And that's a really extraordinary adaptation. It's also something that is of interest to medical researchers as we try to keep our medical facilities clean and, and free of pathogens and microbes we're starting to turn to the ants and and to other insects for solutions on that. One thing that's really cool is that the wood ants that are found in North America and in much of Europe, they'll create these huge mounds out of pine straw and grasses, and they'll actually take pieces of kind of solidified tree sap, um, kind of resin, and place it all over the colony. Well, that resin when combined with the formic acid that is secreted by these formica ants, actually is a very strong antimicrobial compound and helps them to keep their nest clean. So it's not just the leafcutter ants that have figured this out. Many other ant species seem to have some really interesting methods of maintaining a very clean home. Well, we, we, we admire them for it. There are extraordinary adaptions 
all over the, the ant kingdom, if you want to call it that, the, the ant world. One that jumps out to me, and again, talking about leaves as well, kind of connection there, is the weaver ants. Is that a generalist term? Is that a specific species? What are we talking about when we talk about weaver ants? That is a much more specific term than many of the others that we've discussed right. so far. Weaver ant generally is used to refer to the Ocophila, which are a group of, I think, three extant species of what we call weaver ants. But there are a few other ant species that do similar things to what we colloquially call weaver ants that would fit under that category if you're looking at it more broadly. But if I'm going to talk about weaver ants, I generally mean the Ocophila. And the one that is most familiar to people would be the green tree ant, the Ocophila smerindina, I believe. And they are found throughout parts of Southeast Asia and actually uh, Australia as well. The only thing that I know about weaver ants in terms of their behaviors is they, they are able to create these incredible structures, I guess you'd call them, using the leaves of trees. And as part of that process, they are using... You could make an argument, maybe a tool in the sense that they are making use of a thing outside of themselves as an individual to do a job. Because as I understand it, they're using uh, the brood, right, as part of the construction process of these, of these structures. That's right. So if you remember back to just a few minutes ago when we were talking about the different subfamilies of ants, hmm. we have the formicini. They, those are the ants that had that thin cuticle, the single yeah. petiolar segment. Well. One thing that is not unique to the formicity, but is very common among them, is that they have what's called a kind of pupil casing, a cocoon. It's essentially a silk that is spun by the ant larva when it is pupating or going into, into the last developmental stage before becoming a worker ant. Well, the Ocophila, the weaver ants, figured out that they can actually use their larvae when they should be spinning cocoons, essentially, to create this phenomenal silk. And what'll happen is a colony of Ocophila will form underneath a leaf. And as that colony grows, they need more and more kind of structure and protection. So they'll actually team up and link their bodies together to pull different leaves together. And then they use their larvae to actually kind of like spit out silk, essentially, and glue the two pieces of leaves together. These can form uh, some really extraordinary kind of living nests. So a lot of the time the leaves are actually remain alive during this process. They stay fresh, which is really cool. And it creates these kind of ball-shaped groups of leaves tied together with, with ant silk up in the forest canopies. The silk production exists, you know, in lots of animals, but I don't think it's something we necessarily associate with ants. Is that something that beyond the weaver ants, do we see much kind of silky goings on within the ants? We don't see very much of that. There are a few other ant groups that, that sort of utilize it or they'll use different materials. So there are groups of acrobat ants, the chromatogaster mm. uh, genus, that will actually use carton. So they'll, they'll kind of make a pulp and, and put together carton nests. Uh, but ultimately, the, the use of silk for creating a nest is pretty unique to weaver ants and, and a couple other groups that we could still sort of classify as weaver ants. When we're talking about these, these big showpiece behaviours by which certain ants are, are defined, when we talk about leaf cutters and we talk about weaver ants and stuff like this, as someone who studies ants, given that those behaviours are so well recognised, even outside of kind of ant science, is there any kind of sense from, from your perspective that 
those creatures are getting too much attention and actually you you have the sort of inside knowledge on where the, the truly interesting ants are going on. Well, I would say that those ants are truly interesting. Um, <laughs> and I think they're right to get a lot of fanfare. They really are kind of extraordinary examples of evolution and and of insects that are not only important to us ecologically, but are in some ways related or, or relatable for humans mm. to, to experience. But as we learn more and more about the ant species on Earth, of which there might be 20,000, uh, they all have unique stories to tell us. And one of my favorite things as a science communicator and as somebody who works with ants is figuring out, okay, wait, what stories remain untold? And it turns out there's probably a lifetime worth of stories mm. that haven't been told about the ants. Uh, but sometimes it takes a little bit more effort uh, to to kind of get folks excited about what they might perceive to be a, a much more generic ant species than something really flashy like weaver ants or harvester ants or honeypot ants. Well, the honeypot ant—that's a fascinating one. Those are the ones with the um, the kind of living larders, right? That's right. So honeypot ants are one of those groups of ants that is useful for humans to talk about because they do similar things, but they actually evolved all around the world in something called convergent evolution. So we see a pattern of evolution occurring where ants will designate certain members of the colony to, to be living larders, to be repletes. And that will mean that those ants are basically full of the most nutritious and valuable food that the colony possesses. Over time, for some of these ant species, they have actually been able to um, adapt and create these extraordinarily stretchy membranes. Mm -hmm. So their abdomens, which have a social stomach, which essentially isn't digesting food, it's just uh, maintaining it and keeping it stored away, those so social stomachs can swell. And in the case of honeypot ants, they get really large. The honeypot ants I am most familiar with are in the desert southwest of the United States and Mexico. And they are in the group Myrmecocystis. So that genus of ants is known for these extraordinary repletes, and they can actually swell to be the size of small grapes, filled with different liquids. I've actually been on a few different honeypot ant digs, going 10 feet down into the desert soil. We actually have to use special equipment, including a, uh, a backhoe, an excavator, and whatnot, to pull these ants in on, out of the ground and understand what their nest structure is like. So they're extraordinary colonies. The reason you might want to store a whole bunch of liquid food is because in a lot of places that ants exist, food is not always available. It's an ephemeral resource. It'll shift with different seasons. And that is dramatically true in the desert southwest where you have a monsoonal season where there's a lot of rain and a lot of food availability. And then you have a dry season. And those dry seasons seem to be getting longer, and the monsoon seasons seem to be getting shorter and less intense. So as the climate changes, the ants that are there are going to have to adapt to less and less food resources. And fortunately for the honeypot ants, they are already pretty well set up for that because they can store food away in these living larders that might live for at least a few years. What's interesting is they will actually give different types of food to different honeypot ants or repletes. Mm -hmm. So they can store away fats and lipids and proteins in one, and it ends up being kind of a milky, uh, at least from a human perspective, nasty substance, a fairly, uh, a fairly <laughs> offensive thing to be around. 
Um, I've seen somebody actually eat one of those, uh, not knowing that that was, oh, this is probably a caterpillar gut one, for example. Oh, right. Uh, and that's a, a unpleasant. But then mm-hmm. you also have other repletes in the colony that are full of plant nectar or honeydew from aphids. And those ants are super sweet. It's basically just eating uh, a little piece uh, or like a little gummy candy or something because they're just full of sugar. The honeypot ants that we have in captivity for museums and zoos and some of the hobbyists uh, in, here in the States actually have them as well, they are often fed things like apples. So if you were to eat one, and I've done this a few times, I find that they take, taste just like apple cider because you have the apple juice and the sugar inside of the ant, which then mixes with the formic acid of the myrmecocystis right, to create a very sort of acidic but sweet taste. And uh, I often tell people that the the taste of apple cider uh, is so close to the taste you get from the honeypot ant that in a blind taste test, you wouldn't be able to tell me the difference. Although possibly harder to produce in sufficient quantities to get a nice nice pint out. That's right. That's right. Although I know some people are interested in making honeypot ant mead, and I think that'd be an extraordinary thing to try. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with you. Uh, In those exact terms, I'd agree with you. And for the honeypot ant, the, the repletes, because I know that among the ants, part of their kind of communication that they have, there's loads of different interesting ways that ants communicate, but the exchange of food is one of those things. With the honeypot ant, if you are lucky enough to be a replete, if lucky is the word, and, and filled up and you swell up and you become this, this living larder, do their lives end well? So the life of a honeypot ant is pretty posh from one perspective in that they are deep within the colony. They're always getting food, of course. They're protected. They're sort of the VIPs of the colony, aside from of the queen, who is the, you know, the, the most important member. So from one perspective, they have a safe and sort of posh life. From another perspective, they get so full that they are, are essentially immobile. Right. Um, so ants, of course, don't bring the same values <laughs> as humans do when we evaluate quality of life. But the repletes generally are longer lived. They, they, they are fairly healthy ants. So the way that they acquire food is through a process called trophallaxis, where a worker ant will come over to them and kind of regurgitate into their mouth and they'll suck that food down into their social stomach. Lovely. It actually works two ways. So that is how that ant will provide food to the colony when they need the food from it. So the trophallaxis works both ways, which means that the ant doesn't have to die in order for the colony to access the food inside of it. That being said, honeypot ants are sort of a form of currency among the honeypot ant species, and they will actually raid other colonies to steal their repletes. And in that process, Oftentimes the repletes die and then they get cut up, their, uh, their gasters get taken off, and then the ants will actually carry those honey-filled gasters back to the other colony. So there is a little bit of risk in being a honeypot ant, but generally speaking, it's a little bit more posh and they generally have a longer lifespan as well. Let me put it this way. If I was going to be an ant, a honeypot ant, uh, mm-hmm. I would probably want to be the queen because they might live for up to 20 years or so. But if I couldn't be the queen, being a replete wouldn't be too bad, I don't think. At all. It's, yeah, it sounds like a, it's a coddled lifestyle, but maybe not one that I would aspire to. Yes. I can see the appeal. I can see the appeal. We've not talked much about ants whose lifestyles are dependent on other ant species. If we're covering groups like leafcutters and weavers, each of these charismatic signature behaviours, 
we should spend some time in the company of a less discussed behaviour. This is a behaviour which lends its name to a number of ant species that exhibit it, from diverse strands of the ant family. I'm talking about slave-making, and therefore the slave-making ants. Now that's a contentious term, and not a pleasant one, so I'm going to use a more scientific term to describe this behaviour. When we talk about slave-making ants, we're talking about brood parasites, who capture the broods of that ant species in order to inflate the workforce of their own nests. These are ants whose colonies are served, as it were, by kidnapped, ant-napped ants. The brood parasites raid the nests of other ants and carry away the brood, which are then raised within the nest of the social parasite. They might do this by exerting brute force and violence over the colony they're raiding, or in some cases, might employ chemical subterfuge. For ants, a great deal of communication in their perception is chemical. A raiding ant with correct adaptations can therefore exploit the chemical perception of the colony it's raiding. In some cases, this might mean dispersing chemicals which cause infighting within the colony, tricking the raided ants into fighting each other. For other brood parasites, they produce a chemical which soothes the raided party, making them placid and less likely to resist the raid. Social parasitism takes other forms in the ant world. For some ants, newly mated queens will sneak into a colony, kill the queen and take her place. The colony will continue as normal, but the established worker base are no longer raising their sisters. They've been tricked into the care of their new queen's brood. Another model of social parasitism is exhibited by the rare ant Tetramorium inquilinum. The queens of this species do not usurp another queen, but piggyback on their success. I mean it quite literally. Inquilinum queens are rather shabby, weak little things who enter an established colony, climb onto the queen, and then live out their days on her back, clinging in place and using a secretion which endears them to the parasitised colony's workforce. Tetramorium inquilinum contributes apparently nothing to the colony within which it finds itself. It does not even produce a worker class. Their mouthparts are almost completely reduced, since they rely on the workers around them to provide food, and they generally fail to put their best foot forward. Like I said, these are shabby little ants with little brains and little bodies, though their bodies are in fact shaped to allow them an easier ride upon the back of that queen they're parasitising. It would be wrong of me now to go off into a reverie about a privileged class exploiting the hard work of those beneath them, offering nothing and existing by manoeuvring into a position by which those who work receive less in order that they may live out lives of luxury. It would be wrong to try and find any kind of anthropomorphic parallel with such a phenomenon, and so I shan't look for one. Instead, we move on. One ant, one kind of ant behaviour that turns up a lot in the media and stuff is the, is the army ant. And army ants have these enormous sort of raiding columns and they're talked about with, with some fear, I think, and, and perhaps, perhaps for good reason, I'm not sure. But among the ants, these feel like they're often portrayed as kind of the villains, the army ants. I mean, what, what is it that defines an army ant? So army ants are nomadic ants. Um, there's a few different right. subfamily that I believe, subfamilies that I believe encapsulate army ants broadly. But the Dora lines are, are kind of one of the primary groups. What I will say is that army ants, because they have a nomadic lifestyle that essentially forces them to move through the environment in what can be fairly intimidating raiding columns, at least from the perspective mm. of humans or, or frankly, anything that lives on the forest floor uh, or a grassland. 
they can be definitely scary. And there are a few right. army ant species of medical significance, where if you get stung by too many of them, you can have a very serious reaction. And it has been recorded that army ant columns, if they find a fairly newborn infant, may actually predate on that kind of baby human because they identify it mm. as an accessible food source. So army ants are one of the few ants that really can be quite dangerous in certain contexts. That nomadic lifestyle is very unique, and it's not something that has evolved very often in the ants. Generally speaking, when we think about ants, we think about these extraordinary underground nests, or in the case of weaver ants, these semi-permanent leaf-made homes. But army ants break all of those rules, and they move around and set up a, a temporary nest using their own bodies, and that's called a bivouac. And in the case of Eseton burchelli, which is a New World army ant, uh, it's generally used as the face of army ants uh, across you know different species. This right. is what we think of. Uh, they're a fairly... I, th I think all living things have some beauty to them. That being said, <laughs> army ants are this sort of puke, tan color, <laughs> yeah. really large jaws, weird beady eyes, and very potent stings. And they they certainly have a much more intimidating appearance than, than most of the ants, and quite frankly, for good reason. Yeah, they they are they're pretty striking to look at. They like you said, they have that kind of milky milky white colour almost yes. with the really substantial jaws. They haven't got a set home. They're able to build these bivouacs. What's going on in terms of the queen and the brood then when it comes to the army ants? So they go through some kind of interesting cycles within those lives where an army ant colony will actually set up a bivouac somewhere and the queen will ingest a whole bunch of food, swell up and lay a ton of eggs. And during that process, the eggs then, of course, turn into larvae and then pupae and then adult worker ants. That's the reproductive phase of the colony. But the nomadic phase occurs a few weeks later, where the ants will actually pick up everything and go on the move. And they bring the queen and all the other individuals in the colony with them. And they'll go and set up somewhere else, exhaust that area of its resources, and move on. And it's a really fascinating life strategy. Some ant queens will just sort of dribble eggs out over time, so they don't have like a set schedule. They don't necessarily make batches, whereas other ant species will actually have multiple batches of eggs throughout a year with a fairly kind of predetermined schedule. So when we look at carpenter ants in captivity, for example, they'll have a couple of different kind of egg booms throughout the year, in my experience, between two and four during the growing season. Uh, and that is actually reflected a little bit in how army ants do it as well. But it is certainly a different process. And the nomadic behavior brings a whole different element of risk for that colony because it means that they're moving their queen and that she will be vulnerable in that process. Not too vulnerable, though, because she is surrounded by an extraordinary kind of group of secret service agents that have <laughs> enormous mandibles and very powerful stings. Basically, everything in any given forest or whatever where, where army ants are present knows to get away or will at least try to get away and maybe will be consumed by the colony. They, they really are some powerful forces of nature. I feel like I've heard stories about ecosystems that surround army ants, by which there's birds and things that, that follow the colony and are able to go for things that they sort of flush out of the undergrowth and things like that. Yes. So. 
there's a really interesting thing that happens in different ecosystems when there is disturbance. So here in Florida, we have wildfires that will actually sweep through uh, the area, and some predators will take advantage of that disruption where grasshoppers and all kinds of insects might be fleeing a fire. Uh, birds might be using that opportunity to collect those insects when they make themselves seen as they flee this dangerous thing. And something similar happens with army ants where they move through the forest. The organisms that can get away will flee, but in that process, they may expose themselves to other predators that that know mm. to follow the army ants. And then we actually have certain researchers, um, I think one is at the University of Wyoming, but I'm not certain on that, that will focus on those different kinds of relationships with army ants and, and predators that will kind of follow alongside them. Disturbance is a really interesting uh, thing to study because we often, I think, think of e ecosystems as not changing very much. But they're always changing, and disturbances bring interesting opportunities for species to interact in ways that we may not see them interact when a system seems to be more stable, at least from the human perspective. One interaction that that exists with kind of interaction between ants and other animals that exists, that maybe this is a nice moment for me to sort of step in and say, you know, we talk about all these ants of the tropics and things and how exciting they are, and they are, and they're great. But for those of us who live in more temperate climates. One ant behaviour that I love to see in the world and I think is endlessly fascinating is the relationship you see between ants and aphids, where you do have ants that, that you in, in, would so rudely dismiss, Miles, but <laughs> ants that um, have a behaviour where they're essentially tending to a flock of aphids that live upon a plant and offer to some degree protection in exchange for, what would you say, like beads of what would be optimistically called honeydew. Of the more sedate ant species, if we're going to call them that, I think that's one of the more, the more interesting interactions we see. I mean, I have to agree with you. For the record, Tom, I have a lot of appreciation for the ants <laughs> of England and, and other parts of Europe. Uh, but I started keeping ants, I think, 13 years ago, and I was one of very few American ant keepers. The great majority of the ant keepers that were at least available to me online were in Europe. And, uh, really? It has been gratifying for me to see our hobby group grow here in the United States and kind of in other parts of the world, South Africa, Australia, uh, Brazil. And I, I often will take the opportunity to kind of chide my European colleagues and friends uh, mm. about their diversity because they often like <laughs> to brag to me about their much more well-established hobby and resources. And they have a different regulatory atmosphere there where they're actually able often to get exotic ant species that are not of a super high kind of invasive threat. Uh, and that is something that is not currently available to Americans or, or really many people around the world. Um, so because of that, I have a little bit of a history uh, giving it a, a little bit of grief to my European friends. What I will say about ant aphid mutualisms is that is, it is a truly fascinating process that is actually a little bit more complicated than we usually talk about. But, uh, you know, there's a recent study in India, for example, uh, from I think the National Academy of Sciences in India, where they found that the presence of ants that are working with aphids on a certain kind of plant 
actually benefits that plant because having ants there in combination with other predators helps to manage aphid populations to a point where it doesn't affect the reproductive fitness of the plant. So it's essentially its ability to reproduce. Uh, but if you exclude ants from that process, the plant suffers. And if you exclude other predators from that process, the plant is also not doing as well. So the, the unique combination of having ants tending aphids on these plants in conjunction with other predators like ladybird beetles or uh, grass spiders, for example, lynx spiders, uh, that creates a really interesting um, multi-trophic interaction where the ecosystem is kind of at its healthiest uh, because all these different things are happening. Uh, I'd also mention that ant-aphid mutualisms is something that people all around the world are able to experience. You right. see it in the United Kingdom, you see it all over the place. So if ants are around, and if there are plants, there's a good chance that there are aphids and that the ants have not only found the aphids, but are actually engaged in attending behavior, a mutualism, where both the ants and the aphids are benefiting uh, from that. The ants will protect the aphids, of course, from predators because the ants see the aphids as a resource. And the aphids are kind of like little valves into the plant. So plant sap uh, is really high in carbohydrates or sugars. And the aphids are trying to get a little bit of sugar, but they mostly want nitrogen and, and other nutrients that are quite rare in those plants. Essentially, this means that the aphids have to process a ton of food. And their waste product is essentially just sugar water, which, of course, if you've ever seen ants recruiting to anything sugary, some spilled Coca-Cola <laughs> on the sidewalk or something, you know that they can be pretty ravenous for sugar. So it makes off for a pretty cool little relationship. And one of those areas where anthropomorphizing can actually be helpful for humans to understand. So if we look at, at aphids essentially as cattle, we can see, oh, yeah, we get milk from cows. And we protect them from predators. Well, the ants are getting essentially honeydew or kind of sugary milk from the aphids and protecting them from predators as well. If you're enjoying Grubbing in the Filth, come and wallow with me in the horrendous world of social media. You can follow Grubbing in the Filth on Instagram and Twitter. On Instagram, it's at Grubbing in the Filth. And on Twitter, it's at GITF Podcast. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, whether it's your own perspective to share a story, a photo, or what have you. As someone who's passionate about ants, how else do you think that your layperson, your average person who's interested in going and having a look for some ants and, and seeing ants in the wild, given that so much of ant behaviour is, is hidden away from us, what other kind of things are, are accessible to people in, in terms of making their observation of ants kind of meaningful? I think spending time in the natural world more broadly is critically important for human health and for our experience mm. as people. And ants are just one way to kind of have that experience. One of my favorite things to do in almost any given environment, as long as I can you know, bear the conditions, is to just sit down and, and, and look at kind of like a one square meter area for maybe 20 or 30 minutes and see what's going on. And you will be amazed at the extraordinary number of little things that live in that one square meter that are doing things. Mm. And oftentimes, if you're lucky enough that there's an ant colony there, and chances are pretty good that there's going to be ants around, you'll sure. see some really interesting behaviors. Whether it be two worker ants working together to try and bring a caterpillar home, 
even though they can't talk to each other very easily and they don't know exactly where they're going, eventually you'll see that they bring the caterpillar home. It might take them a while. <laughs> they might go in the wrong direction a few times, <laughs> but they get that work done. One of my favorite things to do is to find a few different ant colonies out in the natural world that I can go and check on that are easy for me to see. Maybe it's near right. your apartment or your home or your office. A lunch break is a great time to go and see what ants are doing. And if you go and visit the same ant colony over a period of days or weeks or months, or if you're fortunate, years, you'll see all kinds of changes occur in that colony as time goes on, as different resources available, as weather occurs. And uh, I think that can be a really fascinating way to see how ants behave and interact with the natural world. I'm also a huge proponent of having ant farms or formicariums, which mm. is an artificial display of ants. And I've really dedicated a lot of my life's work to helping make that practice of ant rearing and captivity more accessible. And uh, setting up a formicarium with a queen ant and, and a whole functional colony, I think can be an extraordinary experience for almost anyone. You don't have to be a dedicated ant keeper who wants to have 20 or 30 ant species. Something I hope to promote in the coming years would be a little bit more casual ant keeping, or maybe you have one or two formicaria in your mm. home. And, and to think of ants sort of as a living art piece that is there to excite us about nature, to remind us about nature. And uh, I think that that is a really phenomenal way to see those behaviors that you can't see outside in the natural world when the ants are hidden away in their nest. If you use an artificial nest, you can see the interactions between the queen and the workers or how the brood levels fluctuate over a given time. There are so many different behaviors that become accessible to us when we bring ants into captivity. Would it be fair to say with, with, with ants, those behaviors that you're talking about, those incredible behaviors we see in the some of the things we've talked about today, the, the, the weaver ants and their capacity to, to create structures and the, the army ants and their columns and all these different fascinating behaviours. Would it be fair to say that the reason ants have been able to have such incredible behaviours and the reason that ants have such diverse behaviours can be kind of found to be rooted in their capacity for communication in terms of their chemical communication between different ants? I think... That is a huge component of how, because ants are social insects, which is a fairly uncommon thing evolutionarily in the insects, mm. but those, ant, those, those insects that have evolved to become eusocial or semi-social, different degrees of sociality have found some pretty amazing success in that life strategy. And the things that come with being that social is that you have a reliable place to live. It is generally safe. It allows you to accumulate resources. It allows you to create a lot of different reproductives when the time comes. Uh, that social behavior and their ability to communicate things that are maybe a little bit, little bit more complex than you know, your average beetle could communicate to another beetle, for example, Sure. Uh, has definitely enabled them to diversify and spread across Earth. And they've become one of the most important members of ecological communities kind of in the history of the world that we're familiar with, at least on the scale of small animals. Uh, a recent study came out that gave us a better understanding of how many ants there are on Earth. 
The previous estimate of how many ants exist on Earth right. was between 1 and 10 quadrillion, and that was generated by Dr. Bert Holdobler and Dr. E.O. Wilson uh, many years ago. Well, a, research, uh, a recent study that brought together, I believe, over 460 other studies to, to, bring, to get these conclusions, uh, they estimated that there are actually 20 quadrillion ants alive on Earth at any given time. So that's 20,000 trillion individual ants. That's a, about two and a half million ants per person. So if that gives you the context of not only <laughs> how many ants there are, but how many different kind of colonies and opportunities there is for different evolution and life strategies to crop up, pretty soon you come to an understanding that, gosh, that's just a lot of ants. And yeah. with numbers that high, and by the way, it's probably a conservative estimate. There's good reason to mm. think that they could have more ants on Earth. Uh, but with numbers that high, it's sort of like, well, duh, of course they're so important. Of course yeah. there's so many opportunities to be cool. Um, and I think that's just an extraordinary thing. And I find it inspiring uh, to know that there are so many ants out there doing important things for ecosystems. And I also find it humbling because humans yes. have extraordinary and extraordinarily negative impacts on the earth and on the biosphere. But sometimes I think we discount the resiliency that uh, our natural systems have and answer a part of a really complex web of interactions that create a, a sort of resiliency that we as humans really are relying on uh, to maintain ecosystems and the services they provide to us. I th yeah, I think humbling is the word for it when it comes to ants, just in terms of what I love most about them is the level of sophistication, the level of, you know, the, the, the fact that they are doing these incredible things, uncaring of us, and they're doing them whether we like it or not, and they're doing them everywhere, you know, wherever you are. I, I know for a fact that I know where my nearest ant colony is right now, and it runs near the front door of the, of the flat. And I've, I live in the middle of the city, you know, but ants will, will get amongst you and ants will do, do their thing. And I think that the fact that ants you know, are, are able to, to have this, all these things they, they can do and all these behaviours and all these different morphologies that we, you know, you, you mentioned conserve estimates. We're surely only scratching the surface of our understanding of the ant world because of its scale, right? And one thing I wanted to ask you before, before I let you go, and thank you so much for speaking to me again, but is, you know, if you could, if you could shrink down and become an ambassador on our behalf, um, in, in some ways, you are an ambassador for the ant world. But if you could become a very literal ambassador for the ants and shrink down and speak with them, and if you could learn a truth from them or ask them a question, you know, what is it that you would like to know about ants that maybe we don't know right now? That's a fascinating question. Um, I think the thing that I wonder the most about ants is the level of self-awareness that an animal that mm. we often think of as being so simple, what kind of self-awareness do they have? Do they have a self-awareness, really? Or are they kind mm. of the little uh, computers that we often make them out to be, where they get a certain kind of input of stimulus, and then they have a certain kind of reaction? But I will say that anecdotally, as someone who's kept ants in captivity for 13, 14 years, something like that, I have definitely noticed what I would consider to be kind of personalities among ants of uh, the same species, where different ant colonies will act differently, 
different individuals within those colonies may act in unique ways. And science hasn't thoroughly explored that topic and, and come to an understanding of how that works. So I would love to know just how conscious is an ant of kind of its surroundings, mm. of its place in the colony. If an ant is a queen, does she necessarily perceive the importance that she plays in that colony? Um, I think these are interesting questions, and in some ways, maybe fundamentally unanswerable ones, but that still makes sure. them philosophically interesting. I wanted to tell you and your listeners about a couple different ant species that often don't get as much fanfare as the leafcutter ants or the army ants that I think are still greatly important and very, very interesting to study. <laughs> the first is cataglyphus, so the, the, the Sahara, the silvery ants of the Sahara. They are the fastest ants on Earth, and they also survive at temperatures over 47 degrees Celsius every single day. Uh, that's about 117 Fahrenheit for those of us uh, here in the United States. And they actually have a critical maximum temperature, so the hottest temperature they can go before they die, of 54 degrees Celsius. That's about 129 or 130 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit, which is just mind-boggling. Uh, so we see that these different kind of life histories and traits and, and evolutionary um, adaptations can create things that we can learn a lot from. Scientists are very interested in understanding how on earth these ants can survive in conditions that almost no other insects are able to function at. There's also a different ant species in South America, I believe, called Gigantiops destructor, which are ants that break a lot of rules. They have huge eyes and they have jumping legs, and they follow, They forage solitarily, so they don't work together. They go out and find their food on their own and then bring it back to the colony. Well, these ants are able to spot humans like six feet away uh, walking through the brush, and they'll actually jump away from them using their eyes to navigate the landscape. And that is such a different behavior from what kind of our, our kind of generic garden ants might be doing. Yeah. I find it truly fascinating and also a little bit sad that it's not talked about more because mm. we often don't think of insects as something that can truly perceive the presence of humans. There are very few insects that like have large eyes and seem to notice us except for wasps that might get disturbed by us brushing their nest or something. So having ants that are out there seeing humans and jumping through the underbrush to get away from them is a fascinating thing to me. I'll leave you and your listeners with one final group of ants called the turtle ants. And if you might remember okay. from that tier list video that I made um, <laughs> a while back, I actually... I to go more. I, I, yes, I, I think they may enjoy that, although I, I maybe made a few mistakes that I'm going to have to stand by. Uh, I might have shortchanged the turtle ants just a little bit. And these are ants in the genus Cephalodes. They have these extraordinary structures uh, on some of the ants in the colonies, the majors, um, that actually are used to block the entrances of their nests, which are generally in hollow twigs. And these heads function as essentially movable doors that will keep anything bad that the ants don't want in their nest out. And they can actually use those heads to kind of close things off or open them up if they want to let their sisters through. Um, they also have an extraordinary behavior that we're just beginning to understand, uh, where if the ants 
the, the, the turtle ants to be specific, if they fall out of a tree or get knocked off by wind because they're arboreal, they're actually able to glide and guide the way that their bodies <laughs> fall through the air so that they will end up back on their home tree. An ant that is separated from its colony and doesn't know where its nest is, is a dead ant. So the fact that these ants have actually evolved a way to steer themselves as they fall through the air is just an amazing thing. And it adds on to kind of the other traits of cephalodes that we already find really fascinating. I think that these, um, yeah, these, the cephalodes ants, they have, they're almost, almost look like corks to some degree. They're incredible looking creatures. They're often called cork think, heads, yes. Well, there you go. Well, the fact that you're able to give us these, these three examples of additional ants that people maybe haven't heard of, um, which have these fascinating lives, speaks, I think, to the, the broader picture, right? Which is that we could spend, we could stay on this call for the next 24 hours. We shan't. We could stay on this call for the next 24 hours talking about the various kinds of ants. Um, and again, we'd only be scratching the surface because there's always going to be these unusual behaviours and lifestyles out there. And I think that's what's so incredible about ants. And if people want to know more about ants, if people want to widen their, their ant horizons, obviously you've got your tier list video, which is um, you know, a valuable resource. But in terms of the, kind of the, the stuff that you've put out there into the world and maybe some other things you, you could recommend, where can people go to learn more about ants? Sure. Um, you can visit my website, milesmaxer.com. That'll have kind of the most up-to-date links on the work that I'm doing and the work that our ant rearing team here at the University of Florida is doing. Uh, right now, we have a brand identity called the Ant Network, which has been used to teach people about ants and often under the guise of ant rearing or ant keeping, but not exclusively. So they can go and learn more about my personal work there. There are also lots of other resources that kind of encapsulate the, the beauty and the extraordinary complexity of ants. And I would encourage your viewers uh, or listeners rather to mm -hmm. take a look at some of the documentaries that have come out recently. I was actually able to be a part of a, a documentary um, with National Geographic where we looked at the kind of life strategies of honeypot ants in the desert southwest. And that showed up as part of the America the Beautiful series. So you can go in and see that. There are other documentaries that kind of talk about the process of ant research. One focuses on Ed Wilson, E.O. Wilson, uh, one of our most prominent ant researchers. That's called Lord of the Ants. There are some problems uh, with Dr. Wilson's work that have mm. kind of cropped up into conversation, but it's still a really good example of how ant research is done and how it applies more broadly to biology. I would encourage your listeners to just do some Google searches for good ant books. Look at reviews, of course. Make sure what you're looking at is going to be useful. Um, but there are just, I mean, just troves of different resources on ants, and there's more and more being created every day. Um, I don't want to pick any of those out singularly uh, in, in an effort not to offend my colleagues, because we just don't have time sure. for me to go through the hour's worth of great ant content out there. But if your listeners are interested in ant science specifically, I would encourage them to visit the website uh, of the Lucky Lab here at the University of Florida and, and kind of see what we're doing uh, with ants to, to use them to better understand things like ecosystems or evolution and figure out how we can communicate science better. Oh, Miles, thank you so much for speaking to me. It's always a pleasure to speak to you and to, you know, even as you're talking there, through the, this whole conversation, I've been thinking, 
I've got to get some more books about ants because it's just such a wonderful world to dive into. So thank you for being a, an ambassador on behalf of the ants and for, for sharing some of these incredible things they do with us. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate uh, you having me back on. It's great to return to Grubbing in the Filth. And uh, until next time, thanks so much. Thank you. At the start of this episode, I made this throwaway comment in describing ants, and I referred to them as the Fumicidae, which is the scientific name of the ant family. And that's baffling, isn't it? Because ants aren't an order of insect in the same way that beetles or flies are. They're a subgroup of an order, a family. And alongside the bees, sawflies and wasps, wasps in the group from which they're derived, they make up the family Hymenoptera. And this episode isn't about the Hymenoptera, but I think it's worth me pointing out the close ties that exist between these animals, which are closely related and have a great deal in common. But why do I want to draw your attention to taxonomy and classification like this? The reason I want to highlight taxonomy and the reason I want to highlight that ants are a family is because I want to highlight the fact that ants are a single puzzle piece. And all these incredible behaviours and strangeness and all this wonder belongs to a single puzzle piece, albeit a puzzle piece which we've named for our own convenience. It's a special puzzle piece and it's one that intrigues us, but it's part of a bigger picture. The ants and all they do are part of the Hymenoptera, and the Hymenoptera are part of the insects, and the insects are part of the arthropods, and so on and so on, as we build this bigger and bigger picture, of which ants are only a small part. Is that not quite shocking? That the complexity of ants is part of a much greater complexity, the wider natural world. It sounds obvious, but all this stuff we've talked about is real and happening right now, and you're connected to it. The ants are not a piece of art which we've just discussed and enjoyed. This isn't law. All these things we've discussed are happening right now, whether we wanted to or not. And all these behaviours and all these ants are part of a network of lives of which I'm also a part. It's an overwhelmingly complicated picture, which it's hard to make sense of. And so I'm grateful to people like Miles who helped me make sense of little parts of it. I hope this podcast has helped you make a little more sense of the ants. I hope you'll come back and join me again on Grubbing in the Filth for the next time we stare into that tangled mass of legs and bodies and try to make sense of what we see. I'm already excited to revisit the ants. Grubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. And thanks again to Miles Maxke. You can find Grubbing the Filth on Twitter at GITF Podcast or on Instagram at Grubbing the Filth. You can also email grubbingthefilth at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs>